This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. A chemist named John Stith Pemberton, who was a Confederate States Army veteran, he, he was in the battle at Columbus in 1876, and, and he suffered a saber wound. And uh, so because of the pain, he started taking morphine, and, and like so many people became addicted to the morphine, began to experiment with various painkillers, and eventually came up with a recipe that was adapted to make Coca-Cola. But before it took off big, he became sick, and also his morphine addiction was expensive, so he sold the recipe to a lady named Asa Griggs Candler. She was a politician, also a business tycoon. She purchased the recipe for $1,750, and as they say, the rest about Coca-Cola is history. And, and what is super interesting is, is I read today that the Coca-Cola logo is the second most recognizable symbol in all of the world. And something else that I found fascinating to me was their mission statement. Their mission statement is this, to refresh the world. But their marketing statement was even more fascinating. They say this, we want to have a Coke within arm's reach of everyone on the planet. That's their marketing statement. Now, the reason I tell you this isn't to talk about the second most recognizable symbol in all of the world, but today I want to talk to you about the number one most recognizable symbol. Do you know what that is? The cross. You see the cross everywhere. You see the cross um, the front of buildings. You see it in hospitals. You see it on race cars. And in our community, and I'm not going to ask you to do a show and tell, but you see it in tattoos. Um, you see it in jewelry. You see it cross on steeples. We have them in our homes. And as a pastor, I don't know how many crosses you've given me down through the years. I would guess dozens. Um, same way with my dad. My dad is in the nursing home, and every Christmas the, the employees draw names of residents to, to buy gifts for. And, and Gabby had him a couple of years, but this year it was another employee that drew his name, and she came to me. She was so excited. She said, I know your dad has been a pastor, so I know what I'm going to give him. And, and I was there when dad opened his gift from this employee. She had given him three different crosses. Now, without taking a lot of time, I researched the, the largest crosses in the world. Uh, let, me, let me just, this I found really fascinating. Uh, do you know where the largest cross is found in the world? The tallest cross, the largest cross? Well, number one is in Spain. It's that cross there, picture of it there. It's called the Holy Cross of the Valley of the Fallen. It's, it's 500 feet high. And, and the granite mound that it, that it sits on is actually around 500 feet above the surface of the ground. So in essence, it has the appearance of being about 1,000 feet high. Um, it was built in memory of those fallen in battle. The second largest cross is found in the Philippines, and it's called the Memorial Cross, and is dedicated to the fallen Filipino and American soldiers during the World War II. It's 311 feet high. 
The third largest cross is found in the South American country of Chile. It's, it's called the Millennium Cross, and it's 285 feet high, and is one of the widest crosses at 131 feet wide. The fourth largest cross is called the Cross of All Nations, and you would be surprised where it is. It is found in the Muslim country of Lebanon. It's 242 feet high. And as I was looking at this, reading about this, it, it, it has 1,800 different spotlights on it. And so it's called the biggest illuminated cross in the world. I thought, that is so cool. In the Muslim country of Lebanon, the fourth largest cross in the world. And I wanted to show you the rest of the top ten, but we've got a lot of ground to cover today. So let me skip down to number six and show you the tallest cross in the United States. It's in in St. Augustine, Florida. It's 208 feet high. Now, it looks taller than that because it's it's so slim, and it's the slimmest cross. Slimmest? Is that a word? The most slim? The skinniest cross, which causes the illusion that it's a lot taller than it really is. And then at number seven is a cross that I've seen many, many times uh, on my way to, uh, to visit my in-laws at the crossroads of Interstates I-70 and 57. Effingham, Illinois is this cross that's 198 feet tall. It's called the cross at the crossroads. And then one more that, that I found fascinating as I was researching this. This is in the category of crosses that, that, that's not really a cross, but this one is in the Muslim country of um, United Arab Emirates in the city of Dubai. British architect Tom Wright designed, and, and if you've been, how many of you have been to Dubai? Anybody been to Dubai? If you've been to Dubai and, and you've been anywhere, you have seen this. I, I, I've seen this, and it's just because it stands out there. Uh, you, you can see it all around the city. But it, it's just fascinating. But this was supposed to mimic a ship with a sail, and the architect from, from Britain, he was accused of slipping in a cross. And so you see right here, you see the crossbars. And so after this was built, there was just a lot of controversy. In fact, for a while, this was kind of just something they were proud of. And so they had it on the license plates. And then people began to say, well, there's a cross on it. We can't have that. So they took it off of their license plates and even though they're proud of the building, they're just, they're, there's just a lot of controversy over, over this cross. But anyway, as I was thinking about these two most recognizable symbols of, of Coca-Cola and, and, and the cross, it hit me that in many ways their mission statements and, and their marketing statements are the same. First, as Coke says, their goal is to refresh the world. And of course, Jesus Christ brings new life and refreshing to the world. And also, the, the goal is to have a Coke at arm's reach, and we're commanded to take the gospel of Jesus to the ends of the earth and basically have the gospel at arm's length of every human being. But as we think of the cross, if there's one word that we could associate with the cross, what would it be? Uh, and I know there are several words that, we, that would fit in, but, but from, from my perspective, the one word that would most perfectly describe the mission of the cross is the word forgiveness. 
And of course, central in that message of forgiveness is the forgiveness that we find in Jesus Christ and, and that frees us from the penalty of sin. And, and that's what I call, and theologians call, the vertical aspect of forgiveness. We can't ignore the vertical aspect that Jesus Christ gives us, the, the vertical aspect of forgiveness. Jesus Christ forgives us of our sins. But then, there's another aspect of forgiveness that we don't like as much. We love the vertical aspect. We're bad boys, bad girls. God forgives us. We love that. But there's the horizontal aspect of forgiveness. And the horizontal message of forgiveness is also one that we can't ignore. Because let me ask you some questions here. Has there ever been a time in your life when someone wronged you? Yeah, of course. Has there ever been a time in your life when someone lied about you or lied to you or cheated you or misrepresented you or or took advantage of you or harmed your reputation or broke your trust? Of course, we've all had that happen. And that's why when it comes to the cross, we must not only talk about the forgiveness that, that Christ freely offers us, but we must talk about the forgiveness that we should also freely give each other. And, so, and something that people don't understand is that the way that we handle horizontal forgiveness and the way that we respond to the wrongs that people have inflicted on us, to a large degree, shapes us. If we're able to forgive and let it go, that response shapes us. But on the other hand, if we respond with revenge or, or by holding a grudge, that response also has a way of shaping us. And so as we get into this topic, l- let me throw out a question for you to keep in the back of your mind for the duration of our study today. For those of you, and there are some here, But for those of you that have a tendency to hold on to hurts and injustices and grudges, the question I want to pose to you today is, what do you hope to accomplish by holding on to a grudge? And and you probably haven't thought about it like that, but most of the time when we hold a grudge, we do so because we want to hurt the person that hurt us. Whenever we give them a dirty look, we want that to sting them. When when we give them a cold shoulder, we want that to send the message we're not happy with them. But does holding a grudge really work? Does it accomplish what you want it to? Does holding a grudge hurt them and help you? Does it bring freedom to you? Does holding a grudge help you sleep better at night? Does holding a grudge cause you to be more cheerful? Does it help keep your blood pressure at healthy levels? I have a feeling that the answer to all of those questions is no. And if you've been holding on to a grudge for a long time, more than likely that grudge has eaten away at you. See, see, here's the sinister thing about a grudge. The the longer you hold on to a grudge, the longer the grudge will hold on to you, and the deeper it will become lodged within you. 
And I talk with a lot of people that have been carrying a grudge for a long time, and what I see is that the longer they have carried the grudge, the weight of the grudge has gotten heavier and heavier and heavier, and sometimes the weight, the emotional weight of that grudge has destroyed them. And Tuesday, <laughs> while I was working on this lesson, I've got one of those in my office. I've got a keyboard that you just pull out and you can push in. But Tuesday, while working on this lesson, I just pushed in my keyboard. And I began to pray, oh God, would you, <laughs> would you begin to speak to all of us? Um, all of the grudge holders? And cause them to allow the Spirit of God to help them release the grip of the grudge. Because you, you see, people can't move forward sometimes because they're chain-linked to the past. And here's what will happen. As time progresses, if, if you keep carrying that grudge, you need to realize that the person the grudge is hurting the most isn't the person that you're holding a grudge against. It's the person holding the grudge. In other words, if you carry a grudge, you will be the one that will be hurt the most. And so I've been praying that we will all allow God to help us release the grip of the past grudges so we can live in freedom. So let, let, let's come back to the cross. You know, we've looked at some modern-day um, modern crosses, um, but the Romans, do you realize they were the ones who began to bring the cross to the forefront? And the Romans had learned and perfected the art of crucifixion so that the person crucified would suffer the greatest amount of pain possible. But, we, but what you may or may not know is that the Romans didn't always use the same style of cross for every crucifixion. In fact, here are the different uh, four different types of, of crosses that they used. This was just the single beam. And there are some people that, that believe that, that Christ was crucified on, on this type of cross, especially the Jehovah's Witness. They would say that he was crucified on a single beam. And then there is what is called the high tau. Tau is, is, is a Greek letter. And, um, and, and so the, the capital Greek letter you know, there, there, there's actually pretty strong opinions that this is the cross that Jesus was crucified on. And then this right here is called the lower tau, the, the Greek letter tau. And, and so that would be the kind of the traditional cross that we think. And then this right here uh, was another cross that the, the Romans used. And um, uh, some believe that the apostle Andrew was crucified on this type of cross at, at his request. You know, the other thing interesting is that is many times in, in, in art, in movies, Jesus is portrayed as, as carrying the full cross to Calvary. But probably, and, and again, we don't, we don't know for sure, but most of the time, soldiers had the beam already in the ground, and so the, the, the criminals would carry just the crossbar, and then they would hook it onto the main beam. Uh, and, and again, we don't know that for sure. But that's just kind of the way that the Romans did it. But the most significant difference in, in terms of how the cross has been portrayed and how it actually probably happened in history is that Jesus is often pictured 
as being crucified on a cross that maybe is 15 to 20 feet high. And, and so those that were observing, and, and it seems warped to us, but back in those days, they came to observe a crucifixion, but they would have to look up at the victim. They would look up at, at the criminal. Um, but, but this is probably, this is inconsistent with how the Eastern Legion of Rome crucified people. They, they crucified people on a cross that would put the victim almost at eye level and so that they would come up, the observers could come up and almost be eye to eye with the person on the cross. Because the Romans wanted to make crucifixion very, very personal. And, and they did that for psychological reasons. And here's what Rome was telling people. They were saying, hey, come on, get close. We want you to get face to face and eye to eye with the person who is on the cross we want you to see it. We want you to feel it. We want you to hear it. We want you to smell it. Because they knew that once you experienced someone dying on the cross, you would never, ever forget it. It was horrific. And the psychological message that the kingdom of Rome was sending was that if you do not submit to Rome, this too shall be you. And it was a powerful message and deterrent to anyone who saw crucifixion. But the day that Jesus was crucified, the kingdom of Rome wasn't the only kingdom sending a message that day. There was a far greater kingdom with a far greater message. The kingdom of God was sending the message, come, get close, get face to face and eye to eye with the Savior of the world. It was a message that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son on the cross that whosoever would believe in him, would not perish, but would be forgiven and have everlasting life. Amen. But where we want to spend the remainder of our time today is that after you've had an encounter with Jesus Christ at the cross, after you've been forgiven by God, this is what should happen. A shift should take place in our hearts. God's forgiveness shouldn't just come to us, but it should go through us and begin to flow out of us. Let me say it again. God's forgiveness shouldn't just come to us, but it should flow through us. We're not just to be recipients of God's grace and forgiveness, but we're to be distributors of it. Forgiven people forgive. Forgiven people forgive. Would you say it with me? One, two, three. Forgiven people forgive. Say it again. Forgiven people forgive. And don't miss this. When we forgive those who have hurt us, that forgiveness will begin to release the grip of the grudge. Forgiveness breaks the chain of the past. And allows us to move forward. The Apostle Paul wrote about forgiveness and releasing the grip of the grudge in Romans chapter 12, verse 17. It says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Now, notice that Paul was calling whatever was done, he's calling it evil. He, he's not saying, You know, I'd just be tough, you know, push through it, it was no big deal. He calls whatever was done evil. People do evil things to us. But what Paul was saying is that. Repaying evil for evil and, and grudge holding is not Christ's way. 
So he goes on and says, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. So, so please don't give people a reason to call you a hypocrite. Pay your bills. Don't be shady in your dealings. Don't be ugly to the wait staff in restaurants. That seems to bring out the devil in all of us. Verse 18, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, now catch that Paul doesn't say that we're to live in partnership with everyone. He's not saying, you know, we've got to be best buds with, with, with the one that stole from you. He's not saying, okay, you know, he stole from you, so give him the rest that he didn't take the first time. No, this is not an invitation to be a doormat. Paul is saying that we should live at peace, which means that when we see someone that hurt us and we avoid them, if we avoid them and turn our heads so we don't talk with them, just so you know, we're not at peace with them. We don't have to go up to them and hug them and say, I'm so glad to see you. No, but as a follower of Jesus Christ, who has been forgiven of all of the junk that we did, Remember all the stuff that you did? And you said, God, I'm sorry. Forgive me? Did Christ forgive you? Yes. If we've been forgiven of all that stuff, then that forgiveness should flow to us and through us and at least help us to be civil and be able to speak to them and in the same room And even in the same church. He goes on in verse 19 says, Do not take revenge, my friends. Listen, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, let me ask you a question, and and I want you to respond out loud. This is not a trick question. Based on this verse, do not take uh, revenge, my friends. Um, I will repay, says the Lord. Whose job is it to avenge you? God's. Second question. This is not a trick question. Answer out loud. When you take on the job of avenging yourself, whose job are you taking on? God's. And for your information, you are terrible at doing God's job. (laughs) And I am too. You see, I believe that some of us, uh, we, we think we have to get even and make the other person hurt and pay is because we think that if we let them off the hook, they will get off scot-free without any consequences. How many times have you said that? What gets me is they're just getting off scot-free. That's not what the Bible teaches. The, the Bible teaches that there will be consequences. Probably much worse than if you would be the avenger because now it's the judge of the universe that's dealing with him. Paul says, your job is to not repay evil for evil. God's job is to avenge them. And when you come to the point of being able to just let God be God and do His job, it's liberating. Well, Paul then goes on in verse 20, and this is one of those verses, I wish were not in the Bible. And and I'll admit, this one really kicked me this past week because I just, I don't know, for some reason it came to me so powerfully, but... After telling us, don't repay evil for evil, let God avenge you, it says this in verse 20, on the contrary. So instead of getting even, instead of carrying a grudge and avoiding them, here's what you're to do. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. Uh Uh-oh. 
If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Yeah, I know you don't like this verse either. And we all try to find a way to say, well, you know what, this verse really doesn't apply to my situation. My my situation is really different. God's Word says, when someone hurts you, in fact, go so far to call them your enemy, God's Word says, track him down. Don't just say, oh, okay, I'll forgive him, but... I'll have nothing to do with him ever again. We'll go our separate ways. That's not what God's Word says. God's Word says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. For this is where we misunderstand this whole concept of, of, of forgiveness. Um. The, the, the whole point here is that forgiveness is not, okay, I'll forgive you, but stay away from me. That's not the biblical concept of true forgiveness. Forgiveness is aggressive. It's aggressively showing Jesus. If someone has harmed you, Paul says, don't avoid them. Rather, track them down Try to figure out what they need. Do they need groceries? Are they struggling with their finances? Do they need some yard work done? Does their car need to be fixed? Paul is saying that when someone hurts you, forgive them, and then tangibly find a way to show them Jesus. And again, I know you have a thousand reasons why you feel your situation is different and why that advice won't work. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. And then we get to verse 21 where Paul gives us two choices. Do not be overcome by evil. So the first choice is to you know, be overcome by evil. The, 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 do you know what it is to be overcome by evil? In, in, in this context here, let me tell you what it is. Um, not talking to someone because they hurt you, that's being overcome by evil. Avoiding someone because they hurt you, that's evil. Giving someone the cold shoulder, that's being overcome by evil. Talking bad behind someone's back, that's being overcome by evil. Giving people a piece of your mind, that's being overcome by evil. Saying bad words to someone, that is being overcome by evil. And and Paul is saying, that's option number one. But Paul goes on and gives the second option. He says, but overcome evil with good. So Paul is saying, instead of reacting, giving them the cold shoulder, speaking bad of them, Paul says, do good to them. So before we wrap things up, and I tell you just a fascinating account from World War II. Let me give you a quick point, uh, four-point summary of what we've talked about today. You may want to write this down. Number one, embrace God's forgiveness of you. That's vertical forgiveness. Embrace it. Uh, That's where you start. If you ask God for forgiveness, regardless of the depth of your sin, you know, He looks at you. If you are sincere, He looks at you and says, you're forgiven, you're blameless embrace that 
embrace the wonderful forgiveness from God. Once you've embraced God's vertical forgiveness, then the next step is to embrace horizontal forgiveness. And that means forgiven people forgive. As I said, said several times, God's forgiveness doesn't just flow to us, it should flow through us. And the Bible says if you want to be forgiven by God, you will need to forgive others who hurt you. And then don't worry about whether or not the other person will get by with their wrong. Let God avenge you. Don't, don't try to do God's job. You'll make a mess out of things. Number four, overcome evil with good. Forgiveness is aggressively showing Jesus. You know, don't just forgive and then avoid them. Find a way to tangibly show the love of Jesus. Let me tell you a story that, wow, it's, it's a true account. I read this in a book that's entitled uh, Unbroken by Laura Hillenbrand. Some of you might have read it. The book was on the New York Times bestseller list for over four years and spending 14 weeks at number one, which is phenomenal for a book that very clearly presents the saving power of Jesus Christ. The central character in this book is a man named Louis Zamperini. Louis was born in 1917 in New York. And ladies, listen to this. He was born an 11 and a half pound boy. He was the son of an Italian immigrant. Almost immediately, even as a toddler, Louis became a handful. <laughs> uh, at the age of two, while very sick with pneumonia, he climbed out of his second-story bedroom window, somehow made his way safely down to the ground, went on a naked run down the street with policemen chasing him and a crowd cheering him on. Soon after, their doctor encouraged the family to leave New York for the health reasons and move to warmer climates of California. And, you know, the family considered, you know how it is, picking up, uh, moving to another house across town. Well, this, they were moving uh, uh, clear, clear across the, the, the country, basically. And um, so they, they considered it and finally, finally did that. They packed up their few belongings, boarded the train. Sometime after the train pulled out of Grand Central Station, Louis, not much older than a toddler, escaped the watchful care of the parents and ran the length of the train and jumped off the caboose while the train was still moving. Of course, they talked to a conductor and they got the train stopped and they went back and found Louis unhurt. He was strolling up the track and he said in Italian, I knew you would come back for me. At the age of five, Louis started smoking discarded cigarette butts while walking to kindergarten. At the age of eight, he began drinking. He would hide under a table where he knew they were serving wine, and he would snatch glasses of wine, drink them dry, and after getting soused, he would stagger outside so intoxicated he'd fall down. One time he fell into a rose bush. That was at the ripe old age of eight. Thrilled by the crashing of boundaries, Louis was untamable. By the way, this book is fascinating. I would encourage you to read that. Louis was untamable. If it was edible, Louis stole it and ate it. He skulked down alleys with a roll of lock-picking wire in his pocket. He learned how to pick most any lock. And, and so housewives who stepped from their kitchens would return to find that their suppers had mysteriously disappeared. 
When a local family left Louis off their dinner party guest list, he broke into their house, bribed their Great Dane with a bone, and cleaned out their refrigerator. When a local family, uh, when the local rail car, uh, rail car conductor wouldn't stop for him, Louis greased the rails of the track. When a teacher made him stand in the corner for spitballing, he deflated her car tires with toothpicks. He once stole a neighbor's coffee percolator tube, you know, the, the old-fashioned, those of you that don't have the Keurig, but they've got that tube, and he, and he, and he stole that, and um, he set up a sniper's nest in a tree and crammed pepperberry, pe- pepper tree berries into his mouth, spit them through the tube, and sent the neighborhood girls running. Kind of sounds like fun, actually. But his most famous stunt was when he climbed the steeple of a Baptist church. He rigged the bell with piano wire, strung the wire into a nearby tree that he had climbed that had foliage thick enough to where he could stay out of sight, and he began to pull on that piano wire and rang the church bell at all hours and roused the police and the fire departments. Some of the more naive folks in that town were mystified, and they called the ringing of the bells themselves a sign from God. Louis loved telling his friends the stories of his wild escapades and And all of his stories, almost all of them ended with, and then I ran like mad. Skipping several years of his life to just try to redirect Louis and give him something to do and keep him out of trouble, his his brother convinced him to take up running. And so he joined the high school track team. And and maybe because he had run all of his life to escape trouble, he he became a good runner, a fast runner. And in fact... uh, Over the next few years, he made such a name for himself that at a very young age, he became one of the members of the Olympic team that would represent the United States at the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. And he was actually Jesse Owens' roommate at the 36 Games. Owens would win four gold medals in those Olympics. And, uh, of course, Louis hadn't been running that particular race very long and but he did well, he didn't medal, but it was just pretty much accepted that, that he was the future, he was the odds-on favorite to win the gold at the 1940 Olympics. But of course, at that time, World War II began. The 40 Olympics were canceled, so rather than run in the 1940 Olympic Games, Louis Zamperini joined the U.S. Army Air Corps and served his country. One day, he was flying on a rescue mission over the Pacific Ocean when the plane that he was in experienced mechanical problems and crashed into the Pacific Ocean. The crash killed everyone on board with the exception of Zamperini and two other men. They climbed into two rafts rafts and began an incredible journey drifting in the Pacific Ocean for 2,000 miles over the next 47 days. During that time, he experienced heat and cold and hunger and thirst and storms and and sharks. And and the sharks started out by just bumping the raft. And and then they got really brave and they started trying to lunge into the rafts after them. They would beat them off with the oars that they had in the rafts. But one night, during this 47-day-and-night ordeal, Zamperini, as he was floating in the dark of the Pacific Ocean, he looked up and said, God... I don't know if you're there or not, but if you are, if you are, if you will get me out of this, I'll give you my life. Well, on day 47, they drifted up to the Japanese-occupied Marshall Islands, and little did Louis Zamperini know that the hell he was about to go through over the next two years, 
two years would make the last 47 days look like a stroll in the park. And as I read the account, it it was almost more than I could read. (laughs) He was in conditions that were deplorable. He was starved, severely beaten, and tortured. But of all the men that beat him, there was one man who stood out. His name was Matsuhiro Watanabe. He was the corporal in charge of discipline at the prisoner of war camp. And in the book Unbroken, he's referred to as the bird. Matsuhiro Watanabe would later become one of the top 40 war criminals that both the United States and the Japanese government would try to pursue after World War II. And the day that Louis Zamperini came to Watanabe's prison camp, the bird looked at him and said, I think I know this guy. I think I know him. But he couldn't remember where he had seen him before. And, and, and suddenly, the bird realized this was Louis Zamperini, the great American runner. And when he realized that, all of the vengeance and all of the hatred and all of the brutality that he normally scattered among the prisoners was locked and loaded on Louis Zamperini. And and again, what that man did to Zamperini, it was hard for me to even read in a book. Just a couple of incidents. One day, the bird commanded the other fellow prisoners to take their turns and punch Louis Zamperini in the face. And, And if they wouldn't hit him hard enough... Watanabe would come over and just go off on them and release his fury on Zamperini. And it got to the point when, when each prisoner would come up to take their turn at punching Zamperini, he would whisper, just hit me hard, because otherwise we both will suffer more. For two hours, over and over, he took blow after blow. He took an estimated 220 punches to the face. And again, if the punches were not hard enough, the bird would come unglued and just pummel Louis. That was one day. Another day, the bird came up to him and said, Zamperini, stand up. And as he did, the bird had a belt and, and whipped it into his head. Immediately, he fell to the ground, cracked his skull, and made him get back up, and he hit him again. And this kind of torture went on for two years. And finally, Zamperini said, I can't handle this anymore. He was a broken man. So he began to come up with a plot to kill Matsuhiro Watanabe. But as he was putting this plan together, he went outside. He noticed an American plane that was flying across the sky. And it occurred to him that that might be a sign that the war was coming to an end. And sure enough, uh, shortly after the war did end, and Louis Zamperini was released, a broken man again. He made his way back to his hometown of Torrance, California. Here is how Louis looked after Two years as a POW. He met a beautiful young lady. They got married. He was beginning to start his life over again. But while he may have been removed from the war, listen, the war was still raging within him. What had been done to him caused so much hatred and anger. (sighs) Caused him to turn to alcohol which began to devastate his marriage. And his life started going on a downward spiral. Then one night, 1949, his wife came up to him and said, Louis, there's a young preacher in Los Angeles that everybody is talking about. His name is uh, Billy Graham. 
would you be willing to go with me to hear Billy Graham? And Louis said, I don't believe in God, and no, I don't want to go. But as you men know that sometimes our wives can be very persistent, (laughs) she convinced him to go that night. He went to the crusade, and sure enough, he hated it. But his wife said, Louis, will you please go back with me another night? And he said, okay, trying, trying to save his marriage, but give me a couple of days to kind of recover from this first one. And a couple of nights later, they went back. But he said, here's the condition. When Billy Graham finishes his message and he says, let's pray, that is our signal to leave. His wife said, okay, if that's the condition. So they went back, and when Billy Graham said, let's pray, sure enough, Louis and his wife headed towards the exit. But as they were... Heading out the door, Louis Zamperini, all of a sudden, out of the clear blue, he had a flashback. And what flashed in his mind was that night that he was floating in that raft, the dark night in the Pacific Ocean, sharks trying to get into their raft. He remembered looking up to the sky, saying, God, I don't know if you're there or not, but if you are, if you get me out of this, I'll give you my life. And without even telling his wife what he was doing, he suddenly turned around and moved from the exit and walked down the aisle, gave his life to Jesus Christ, and for the very first time in his life, he embraced the cross and received God's forgiveness. And the book describes this in such a powerful way. As Zamperini embraced God's forgiveness, as it began to flow into his heart, something unexpected And miraculous began to take place, and that forgiveness that flowed into his heart began to flow out of his heart. And and, and I wish I had time to give you more details. I know I've gone long. We're in overtime today. But his life changed. He became a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things passed away. But the story's not over yet. And forgive me, Sunday school teachers, for carving into your time here. Three years later, he had the opportunity to go back to Japan to the very prison, to the Sugamo prison where he had been held for two years. And, and there he encountered many of the same guards who had taken turns beating him, punching him, torturing him. But now they were considered war criminals and were prisoners themselves. Louis Zamperini went to the prison. And one by one, he went up to each of them face to face. And he told them, I just want to let you know that Jesus Christ has forgiven me of my sins and because he's forgiven me of my sins I forgive you for what you did to me and and this is how the book described this moment after telling everyone how he'd given his life to Jesus Christ how he'd forgiven them something the book said shifted sweetly inside of him it was forgiveness beautiful ever effortless and complete the book says that Louis was seized with childlike giddy exuberance and Before he realized what he was doing, he was bounding down the aisle of that prison. And in bewilderment, the men who had abused him watched him come up to to them, hands extended, a radiant smile on his face. And then it says this, for Louis Zamperini, the war was now over. But there was one man that day that was not there. That was Matsuhiro Watanabe, the bird. He was on the run. Neither the United States nor Japan could find him. And many thought that Watanabe had killed himself. But then in 1997, a producer for 60 Minutes located the bird 
And this producer contacted Zamperini and said, we've located the bird. We're going to try to set up an interview with him. Would you want to write a letter that we could deliver to him? And Zamperini said, yes, yes, please. This is the power of the cross. Forgiveness, vertical forgiveness, horizontal forgiveness. Forgiven people truly forgive. They overcome evil with good. Here's the letter. As a result of my prisoner of war experience, under your unwarranted and unreasonable punishment, my post-war life became a nightmare. It was not so much due to the pain and suffering as it was to the tension of stress and humiliation that caused me to hate with a vengeance. Under your discipline, my rights, not only as a prisoner, but also as a human being, were stripped from me. It was a struggle just to maintain enough dignity and and hope to live until the war's end. The post-war nightmares caused my life to crumble. But thanks to a confrontation with God, through the evangelist Billy Graham, I committed my life to Christ. Love replaced a hate. Love replaced a hate I had for you. Christ said to forgive your enemies and pray for them. As you probably know, I returned to Japan in 1952 and was graciously allowed to address all the Japanese war criminals at Sugamo Prison. I, I asked them about you and was told that you had probably committed harikari, another committed suicide, which I was sad to hear. But at that moment, like the others, I forgave you and now would hope that you would also become a Christian. Signed, Louis Zamperini. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.